Chapter Eighteen of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cross Purposes. Did you enjoy your call at Wild Rose Villa, Mr. Clavering? queried a notably sweet voice that made him turn in surprise. Mary Gray was crossing the lane toward him, having apparently come from Mrs. Jones's cottage opposite. The curious smile that curved her lips aroused the antagonism which he always felt in her presence. "'You have done me the honour then to follow me?' he demanded stiffly. She shook her head, and her smile widened. "'No, indeed. I was on my way to the village, while you and Lady Pevensey were at breakfast. But I knew that you would go to the villa.' Mr. Clavering's annoyance grew. He was not pleased that Lady Pevensey should discuss him with this assertive and ubiquitous young woman, as she had evidently done. "'Miss Gray,' he said, striving to speak with a dignity that should put the young woman in her proper place, "'you appear to me to take an extraordinary interest, I may say a morbid interest, in this whole sad affair.' "'I know that my interest must appear extraordinary to you,' she admitted frankly, "'but, Mr. Clavering, I am a keen student of human nature.' mankind to me is the most fascinating of studies i never tire of it and every day i learn more in this case for instance i find the most elemental types the most elemental passions her frankness was disarming mr clavering in spite of himself he walked more slowly at a pace better adapted for conversation what elemental passions have you observed in your study of this case he condescended to ask love passionate and unreasoning and hatred as passionate and even more unreasoning she answered with conviction these i feel sure were the motive powers that sent the earl of portstead from this life mr clavering had never heard her speak so seriously before and he was impressed perhaps he had done her an injustice there was nothing about her now to suggest the adventurous still you don't quite trust me yet mr clavering she surmised with an intuitive flash of her brown eyes. "'I cannot understand you,' he confessed. "'No one does. I am a very much misunderstood person,' she said, with a little moo and a reproachful sidelong glance from under her lashes. Mr. Clavering found himself yielding to the subtle charm that he had long recognized in her, but had been unwilling to admit. Resolved to conquer this weakness, he abruptly shifted the subject by asking if she had ever called at Wild Rose Villa. Guilty, she conceded, with a smile of reminiscence. And I was ordered out, just as you were. An enfant terrible, the little Mavis. But interesting, she added thoughtfully. And as for Elena, oof, she's a tigress. There's no taming her. It came to Mr. Clavering then, whom Elena had meant by the sleek and smiling woman. The description was not inapt, as applied to Mary Gray. What passions do you think actuate Elena? he asked curious to see what she would answer. Mary Gray's expression became enigmatic. I really shouldn't care to say, just yet. But when she showed me to the door, I thought it prudent to go. You know, with a twinkle in her eye, what they say about a live coward, Mr. Clavering. Yes, he knew, and he half suspected that she was poking fun at him in her soft, sly way. How did you know about this Mavis Travis and where she lived? he asked in a hostile tone. Mary Gray looked at him ingenuously. Lord Portstead's will was such an interesting document, really illuminating. Lady Pevensey told me all about it, and I had an irresistible desire to see the principal beneficiary. 
Mr. Clavering viewed her with the old distrust. He had found the will anything but illuminating, and he resolved to advise Lady Pevensey not to make a confidant of Mary Grey. "'I met our little friend Mavis quite by accident and in a very unique fashion,' that young woman rattled on artlessly. "'I was crossing High Street very leisurely and not thinking at all what I was about, when the Shetland pony dashed around a corner and was on me in a moment. I tried to run, but my skirt was made so ridiculously tight,' she glanced down reproachfully at the pretty, clinging grey voile in which she looked so slim and girlish, that I tripped and fell, most ungracefully, I fear, directly in front of the pony.' "'Strange that he did not run you over,' remarked Mr. Clavering unsympathetically. His private belief was that she had planned the whole affair. Mary Grey permitted herself a little sigh of self-pity. "'He would have, if Elena had not seized the reins and pulled him back on his haunches. That gave me an opportunity to pick myself up. I dare say I looked rather funny, for Mavis was highly amused.' "'Was Elena?' coldly demanded Mr. Clavering. "'No, and just as unconcerned over whether I was hurt or not as you are, Mr. Clavering,' she flashed at him with an arch smile. He was growing extremely nettled, and mainly at himself because he did find this impertinent young woman attractive. He thought it best to ignore her coquettish little thrust, and they walked on in silence. She was the first to speak. "'I made friends with Mavis on the spot. The little elf interested me. "'It may seem strange to you, Mr. Clavering,' with another fleeting glance from under her lashes, but she did not distrust me. She evidently took a fancy to me, for she invited me to ride in the back of the pony-cart. Of course Elena objected, and quite rudely, but I did not allow that to prevent my ride. "'No, I should suppose not,' observed Mr. Clavering sarcastically. His sarcasm was apparently lost on Mary Grey. "'Never did I have such a ride,' she laughed softly at the recollection. If my teeth had been false, they would surely have been shaken out. I found Mavis a most amusing little witch, and we became such friends that she invited me to lunch, and I dared to accept, in spite of Elena. But while we were munching seed-cakes—they seemed to be the child's principal diet—I inadvertently and most innocently made some mention of the manor, whereupon Elena fell upon me like a fury, and I speedily found myself in the lane. "'I fear I am not a very courageous person,' she sighed for I have never ventured to face the formidable Elena again. "'I presume that the woman who lives opposite is not so formidable nor so uncommunicative?' he could not refrain from remarking. Mary Grey gave another soft little laugh in which there was no trace of rancor. "'Mr. Clavering, you are positively delightful. You are frankness itself, and I verily believe you have twice the intuition of our friend Burton.' Mr. Clavering could not prevent a flush of gratification, although he tried to appear indifferent. "'Do you know of any vehicle we could engage to carry us back to the manor?' he asked, in the blandest tone in which he had ever addressed her. They had come now to the inn, and the long walk back to the manor in the heat of the day seemed to him a Herculean feat. Mary Grey undertook to inquire for some means of conveyance, and being a persuasive and persistent young woman, induced the landlord to harness his own horse and drive them to the manor. As soon as Lady Pevensey had opportunity, she asked Mr. Clavering what success he had had, and upon learning how the child's nurse had received him, was more than ever convinced of the correctness of her suspicions. Burton was still about the house, the inevitable notebook in hand, now questioning the servants, now bullying Robert. He was getting his final report ready for the inquest on the morrow. 
Lady Ursula stood in visible dread of the inquest, and grew more apprehensive as the day approached. There was still a curious aloofness in her manner toward Meldrum, and yet Mr. Clavering would often find her gazing at him with a yearning intensity. It was as though she were forcing herself to crush her love, and it would not be crushed. Meldrum, obviously pained by her coldness, no longer sought her society, but kept much to himself, and it was to Robert that Lady Ursula clung in these hours of suspense. A change had come over Robert in the past two days. He had not tasted liquor in that time, and there was less of the boy and more of the man about him. His attitude toward his sister had altered, too. Formerly it was she who had sustained him. Now he appeared the stronger, and his manner toward her was both affectionate and protective. It would seem that in acquiring his brother's title he had acquired something, too, of his dignity and strength. "'Robert has in him the makings of a man,' observed Lord Meldrum thoughtfully, as he and Mr. Clavering stood out upon the terrace that night, watching the moon rise. "'He only needs a chance, poor boy.' Mr. Clavering was puffing nervously at his cigar. "'What do you think will be the outcome of the inquest?' "'I think,' Meldrum answered with deliberation, "'that there will be an indictment. Burton's heart is set upon it. He intends to distinguish himself in a prominent case like this.' Mr. Clavering flung away his cigar. He had lost all appetite for it. "'You mean that Robert will be indicted?' The moonlight shone softly on Meldrum's grave, calm face. "'Not necessarily, Robert. Haven't you yourself said there is pretty black evidence against me?' "'I said so, but nothing will convince me that you are guilty.' Meldrum clasped his hand warmly. "'Thank you, old chap.' Mr. Clavering looked away, ashamed of the suspicions he had once harbored. "'Meldrum,' he said contritely, "'I confess that at first I, I did have doubts, but they were unworthy of us both, knowing you as I do.' Yet I must say that your conduct is inexplicable in many ways, and to a stranger must appear suspicious. I believe that you either know or suspect who the guilty person is, and it is your duty to yourself to denounce him, no matter who must be the sufferer. No matter who must be the sufferer, repeated Meldrum slowly. That conviction may be righteous, Clavering, but it is piteously hard. Is it any harder than for you to place your life in jeopardy for the sake of shielding some unworthy person? demanded Mr. Clavering indignantly. "'Go slow, old fellow,' said Meldrum affectionately. "'I am not of the stuff that martyrs are made, and if I keep silent about certain matters and tell bungling lies about others, it is not to shield an unworthy person, but because I find it the best and only thing under the circumstances to do.' Mr. Clavering began to feel provoked at his lordship's perversity. "'I am afraid such a plea would do more to convince a jury of your guilt than of your innocence.' he said testily. "'I am afraid it would myself,' Meldrum answered soberly, "'especially when added to Harry Brooks' testimony. He is determined to prove me guilty of the theft of those papers, at least. The fact is, Clavering, my constituents would have been hard-pressed if those measures of Portstead's had reached the house before we were prepared to resist them. I certainly had provocation enough to steal them.' "'But you did not steal them,' asserted Mr. Clavering." Meldrum stared out over the moonlit gardens. "'Somebody did, old chap, and I am the only one here who could have had any possible interest in doing so. Brooks' reasoning is sound.'" End of chapter 18